0: Welcome to Moonshine Murmurs, a podcast from Stillhouse Press. Thank you for joining us as we interview our authors about their writing and process as artists. We're so glad you're here. You can find more about our press and the books discussed in this episode at our website, stillhousepress.org.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Moonshine Murmurs podcast from Stillhouse Press and Watershed Lit. I'm here with Latif Askia Ba a poet who I've had the pleasure of getting to know by serving as the managing editor for his newest full-length poetry collection from Stillhouse Press, a publishing house emerging from the George Mason University Creative Writing MFA program. The collection, titled The Machine Code of a Bleeding Moon, introduces us to the mind of the poet, to his preoccupations, his fascinations, and even his traumas. In the process, we begin to understand more of Latif's experience and to grasp his brilliance as well. First, let me give you a little background. Latif Askia Ba is a poet with choreic cerebral palsy from Brooklyn, New York. He's currently an MFA candidate at Columbia University and is the print poetry editor for the Columbia Journal's 61st issue. He's also an author at Stillhouse Press and published his first full-length collection, The Machine Code of a Bleeding Moon in September, 2022. He was the first place winner of the Perceptions Writing and Art Contest judged by Sheila Black in 2021 and the second place winner of the Iris N. Spencer Award in 2020. His debut collection, Wet Monasteries, a chapbook, was published by Alien Buddha Press in 2019. Now let's open up the floor for Latif, who is going to read his first poem.
0: Thank you, Tommy. I'm glad to be here. Um, My first poem I read is called Discharge. Um, I'm going to read the first part and the, the final part of the poem. And this bone is a a ratio of my postpartum hospital records. Discharge, part one. Baby boy in bimbo. Four kilograms. Pale. Floppy. Born. Given. Persistently less than HR through a peripheral IV one at one minute and one at five minutes HR less than no respiratory effort cardiac Compression, 60, intubators, 60, chest compressions, 1900 hours, starting to increase PPV via ET, 60 CC. H.R. Admitted to the NICU for perfusion. This is part five now. As you know, his head circumference is growing. The thief, a seven-week-old infant, presumed perinatal asphyxia compounded by neonatal seizures, and acute tubular necrosis. However, his continued poor-sucking ability, his lack of a responsive smile, a few areas of concern, evaluation of spells, he deserves to be watched carefully. The pregnancy was uncomplicated, fresh fits here. The mother states, at no time, the ideology remains unknown. The parents never witnessed but the events were described. Abnormal tongue movements, bicycling, posturing. He did not awaken for feeds. Stronger and stronger, he moves his arms and legs symmetrically. <laughs> These seizures very sloppy and lethargic, achieving developmental milestones. With respect to personal, social skills, he occasionally smiled. The parents are not sure. He preferred to look at faces. No gag for the first week. There was veto mon- monitoring throughout. If this is a responsive smile, the Latif had and was. At home, he occasionally cooed. He cried rarely, an alert and intermediately drowsy young teeth The child was to be followed by therapy. A spontaneous smile, sweet spindles and vertex waves to the tuning sound of a fork. Latif stopped moving and appeared to listen.
1: Thank you, Latif. I um I just want to start by saying that uh, this poem for me does represent in a lot of ways something that the collection is doing as a whole. Uh, we we wanted to touch on uh, the theme of identity today, and to see how uh, identity plays a role in your writing, and one of the things that this poem does that really subverts that structure that the collection is going to make use of is uh, it actually gives you the voice of somebody who is othering you, who is basically looking at you in a very, it, it's, not, it's not inhuman, but it's very clinical. And so it, it does dehumanize the subject of what's being talked about, which is you. And so one of the things that I enjoy about it is that we get to see you make the choice of what to include of this very clinical voice. I did not mean to rhyme there, but you, you actually, um, you give us this interesting opportunity to see that negotiation process take place, especially on the page. So I appreciate the reading, but another cool thing about this book is to be able to see these poems on the page. Um, a lot of these lines are moving back and forth. So I was curious, um, did you make the choice to use erasure more so to make it a poem that was more possible to read? Because obviously you couldn't read the entire report, um, but there's a lot of space in there, white space, a lot of breaks, a lot of, of, of um, a use of breath. And I was wondering whether that was more so for the purpose of reading the poem aloud or to make for an interesting experience on the page, or what were you going for there
0: when you uh, put this poem together? Um it 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 definitely wasn't just that. Um, I, I I wanted people. Well, if I could give people the whole report, I don't think that would that would be helpful. It, it definitely wasn't to conserve space or anything like that. It was it was more like you said to. Use clinical language um, to to describe my experience, but like the the reason why I think the poem the the words on the page move move around so much and have their own sort of form is because uh, I I was trying to. Use the words of the doctors and physical therapists and occupational therapists to create something new um, that that hasn't been hasn't been considered by them before. Like not that they, not that any of these people are like doing anything wrong. Um.
1: Mm-hmm. No, and 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 one of the things that I really like. Um is how the the thing slowly becomes more poetic, like you start at the beginning, and it feels almost like math in that we're getting a lot of numbers and recording of like, not just dates, but like measurements, right. But then as the poem goes on, you begin to get a little bit more of line movement that feels of like a a more, um, a more like a poem and less like a clinical report. And it's so interesting, because these are still the clinicians words but it's almost like um, you're beginning to break into the poetic language of the rest of the book. And what I like so much about it is when you get to the tuning sound of a fork, Latif stopped moving and appeared to listen. Um, You also uh, give us a little bit of an idea of what the book might try to do um, with other things, right? So with um, the influence that sound or music might have had over over you in a larger way. And I kind of wanted to ask, um, Was that, was that something that you were going for with that final line or, um, was music a big influence for you in terms of this poem or this book as a whole? I kind of wanted to just open up space for you to talk about how music, uh, has played a role in your work thus
0: far. Yeah. So going back to that line, I... When I was, re- <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll just tell you the, the full story about these medical reports. Wait, can you kind say of, can you say that one more time? Uh, I guess I'll just tell you the full story of the medical reports and how this poem came about. I think that would be nice. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, basically, I. I my—I don't know why this popped into my head, but I asked my mother to give me all her all her medical reports from that my birth. I wanted—I was just curious because when I go to the doctor, uh, they different doctors will describe my disability differently. And they will give me different terms. And there's a lot of sometimes move around doctors a lot. There's obviously the information gets lost between the doctors. hmm
1: Yeah, that happens. I feel like that's just how the medical system like that's how it functions is off of its own dysfunction.
0: <laughs> right. I asked my mom to give me the report so that I can see what 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 they what they what language they use and what diagnosis they give me at birth stuff like that because my mom was saying that a lot of the stuff that they said at birth was wrong. Um oh, wow. I, turned, And this happens a lot um, for people with the. Developmental disabilities, like they'll get diagnosed with one thing at birth, and then when they're like much older, they find they find out that they have a different diagnosis. Wow! Which that didn't happen to me at that level, but um, so when I was reading through the report, something it was like natural. It was really weird, like something just stuck out to me, and one of the things was, yeah <laughs> the, the team stopped moving and appeared to listen, and yeah, it reminded me of music, and also just the act of listening like this this um then this book too is inspired by. My identification with the Buddhist philosophy. So, in the in Buddhism, I think uh, specifically like Zen Buddhism, I think listening is a really important attitude. Uh, it uh, and it's really important, I think, for poetry too, the ability to listening or moment of listening mm-hmm. where I guess the, the thing that you're listening to sort of absorbs you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that helps. I think that's what poetry is. So I, I think that last line does a lot of different things. Yeah,
1: I agree. And I think what's so interesting for, for your response there is it shows just another layer of the book because I didn't even make that connection between, uh, all the, there's a lot of Buddhism threaded throughout the book. Um, and I didn't even make the connection between that and the idea of like, maybe someone meditating and having some sort of sound that like helps them meditate or some sort of thing that grounds them or whatever. Like, I didn't even think about that aspect of it, but that's another side, side of it because, you know, um, I think developing the skill of listening is just so important. And as a poet, it's like, it's not only our skill, but it's also our torment. Like we we can't forget anything, so it's like it finds our way into our poems.
0: Um And another thing about that about that line that I just noticed is the it says the teeth stopped moving which I thought was really interesting. Um one of my one of the uh I guess characteristics of my disability that I have a, a, a lot of involuntary movement, and you could probably hear it actually mm-hmm. while I while, while I'm speaking right now. Um, it's it's my... it's vague. Like uh, one of the ways it manifests, <laughs> if you don't mind us talking about
1: it, one of yeah. the ways that it manifests because I've worked with you quite a bit, you know, over Zoom, over the phone. Um, it, it manifests in your breath, like I right. kind of hear your sort of, um, it's like a subtle kind of like breathing that's happening beneath the larger breaths that you take. Um, and, and it's never, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not, um, like hard to, uh, to like parse out, um, when you're, you know, actually trying to like say something versus when it's something that's, that's, uh, just happening because you can't control it. But what's so interesting is, um, when, when you're recording, you don't hear it much. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's too big of a deal. Um, and, and honestly, going off of that, though, how has your experience been doing readings? Because as someone with a disability, you have a unique set of circumstances that you have to overcome if you want to do a reading, right? Like with Zoom, that's okay. But then if you're on camera, that's another thing you have to approach. And then also when you're dealing with the idea of like, um doing a live reading and you've got like a stage right some stages literally don't have uh handicap access they might just have stairs um so like how do, how have you had to deal with that thus far and how are you like planning on having to address those things in the future
0: yeah that's a great question and i've been <laughs> i've been thinking about that a lot recently so i did a reading yesterday, um, and so the venue that, I'm read- that I was reading at, I went to a bunch of times and I contacted um, the person who organized the reading and he worked with me. The The place isn't like perfectly accessible, but he worked with me to like make a little ramp and stuff like that to, oh. to make it to make it accessible. That's great. Um, I like that. And they, did, and they just got, I went there yesterday, um, and they just put like a a ramp, a new ramp in the front. So light. Like, I think... So you had like a positive influence on their access. Yeah, I think when disabled people engage with their community, the community uh, generally the You'll be surprised <laughs> how much they, they do. And they want to, like, they,
1: help out, right?
0: It, it, yeah, they want you to be included mm-hmm. into the stage. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's not every community, obviously, but mm-hmm. it, it it was just it was very uh, beautiful experience and communal. So, but when I'm actually reading, um, yeah, and when I give reading the, the the main thing that I'm worried about is whether people under, understand everything that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, whether they get because I'm reading them a poem. So, knowing knowing the words of the poem is kind of important for. I think for this mm-hmm. tone Well see, see, this is the
1: interesting thing about me and you working together. And I think it's it's very, very uh just kind of serendipitous because I my issue is auditory, right? I have some processing things. I trouble I, I, I struggle with um sometimes interpreting what people are saying. So when I go to a musical, I cannot understand what they are saying when they <laughs> sing. When they speak, I'm fine. But if they're singing, I cannot understand what they're saying. And if I don't have the lyrics in front of me, I cannot understand it. So like with me and you, sometimes I have to have you repeat yourself. But my, my one of my favorite experiences for when you're reading is to have the poem with me and to read along with you. Yeah. Um, but I think, go, you know, no matter what, people are able to really feel the emotion of what you're reading. And sometimes if I'm hearing you read and I don't have the poem with me, if one of the lines escapes me, it never really affects my experience with the poem. It's always like I still am feeling what's happening with the poem and like as long as it's not the final line, but I don't think you ever really mess up the final line because I think you take your time with it and make sure it comes out right. Um and I think I think you're good at pacing yourself, you know, because you gotta know yourself to be able to do
0: that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when when I gave this is like my second read yesterday was my second reading from like live reading from the book. um So what I had what I was going to say was even though I'm <laughs> I'm worried about that, it's not really like a real war- like one time on stage and reading all that stuff. Just goes away anyway, so. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because also like if somebody doesn't understand it, one word, like you said, it's it's poetry, and I think the I think one of the important qualities of my poetry and of my of my readings is that they're not they're not perfect, like the. The fact that you can't understand some some of the words, I think that's part of my... I mean, let's let's talk uh, about
1: your interest. You, You like jazz, right? Somewhat? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about your interest in jazz. Jazz is, by its nature, improvisational, and the mistakes that occur within a solo are part of the solo. And, like, they're often not seen as mistakes. They're seen as gestures and, like, little textures added to things. So, like, the musician himself might be like, Darn, I messed up! I played... 5, 8 instead of 6, 9 or whatever the crazy time signature that exists is. And then no one else will know because they'll be listening and be like, Oh, wow. Mm, that sounds good.
0: <laughs> yeah. This next poem I'm going to read is called Cypher. My life was composed by a schizophrenic polyglot. Raving and the Senegalese wrestling ring. kicking up tin and growling like a midnight cat on hot tinfoil. Like frost magnifying the side of spindle. I lay my sinuous wrists and ankles under the plastic sheets of an old projector. The one my English teacher used to roll into the classroom. The black line of Angelou glowed orange. My body like an elaborate lock. My eyes want to walk on the words of languages I don't speak, to be home again in ambiguity. Nice, I like that one so much.
1: Thank you. There's a couple things in here I want to talk about. There's two two mentionings of um, other poets. Your your work, this poem specifically, actually really reminds me of John Berryman, um, the Dream Songs, and he has a tendency to invoke other writers. I think he invokes Frost in one of his poems in there. Um, he has a tendency to like bring up poets um, in a way where it's like sort of an offhanded reference or mentioning but it like fits perfectly and doesn't take you out of the poem um i really like how you're able to do that in two different ways you had the frost mention which is like um more so just a simile that you turn a reference into a simile but then the other one you create a metaphor just through an image um with the black lines of angelou glowed orange like i don't know i thought that was really unique um and i was curious do you do you find that reading other poets' work helps you to write poems? Um, and when you write those poems, do you find that they come out like this? Like, you begin to put those poets' names into the poems? Or is this more so something that just happens as you're writing and you just think of the poet and throw it in? Or what's your – sort of a process question. Uh, when you go to write a poem, like, how does that um, that influence from other poets take place?
0: Yeah, they are all, like, attached. To specific memories of like encountering these poets through through teachers. Mm-hmm. basically like in, in school, like we read Maya Andrew or yeah I think we, we read I first read Maya Andrew and in uh middle school and it just like at the time and like for a while after i never thought about that (laughs) again and then as i got back into poetry and i guess like poetry i'm writing poetry so i'm thinking about like oh i remember this specifically and that hole, that hole It's still until it's not just like just Andrew and Frog. It's like <laughs> Frog. I remember reading about, reading that, the poem about the spider. Mm-hmm. I forgot what it's called. But... Uh, I know exactly which poem you're thinking
1: of. Don't worry. <laughs> everyone does. Oh, a retrospect? <laughs> no, it's called something. Don't worry. It's
0: like, it's really famous. Yeah, yeah
1: hold on. What if, what if I was right?
0: I think it's called Design or something. Oh, it is.
1: It is Design. It is Design. That's literally <laughs> the title. It's got to be. It is. He's, like, talking about the, the back of the spider or something. I don't know. Yeah. Something like that.
0: that. Absolutely. That's a great poem. That's actually one of my favorites of his. I remember hearing about that in, um, like, an intro to creative writing class when I was in um, my undergrad studying computer science. I I took this intro to creative writing class, and that's when I really started writing poetry. Like, I guess like seriously, <laughs> in quotes. Like, <laughs> I remember the teacher the teacher talking about like he was saying that you can like study stuff like it. Like, as if you were about to write an essay, but instead of writing an essay, you can write a poem, and it will, it will, it will still be cool. It's just, like, another way of approaching poetry that I, like that. I thought was really uh, great. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I do that sometimes. It's a, It's the rhetorical aspect of poetry, right? There is always a rhetorical argument the poem is making, even if it's just like an Ezra pounds um, in a station at the Metro where he's just like these people's faces in this dark place look like these leaves on a dark tree in the rain. Like that's the philosophical argument, but it still, it still has an argument inherent in it. Um, and I was interested uh, by the, the, the argument inherent in these first couple lines too. You say my life was composed by a schizophrenic polygot, polyglot, right? So you, you're you basically implying it's somebody who whose thoughts are like frenetic and all over the place, but also somebody who can speak multiple languages. And then you give us uh, Senegalese, right? So that, that again brings us back to that identity question, um, like the role that uh, language and um, heritage play in this book. Could you t- tell us how many languages you can speak at, at some point? I'm just curious.
0: My and my dad has we speak they speak a lot of languages. Um my dad grew up speaking Fulani. Well, that was the first language he learned from his mother because they Fulani is an ethnic minority in Senegal but they're they're all over West West Africa. Um then he learned what at the same time, because Wolof is uh, spoken—that's the—that's the majority language that's spoken in Senegal. Um, so he just learned it from his friends and on the street, and then in school. It was like in the sixties and seventies; it was all in French. I think. And it's still it's still all in French. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So, because uh, France colonized something so they do they do all their education in in French. So he speaks. Uh, Fulani was a French in English when he came here, and then my my stepmother speaks she from Morocco. Uh, does so she speaks Arabic, and... Oh, okay. uh, uh the, the dialect from her is hard. D- They're uh, because there's different types of Arabic. Um, So she see that, and she sees French and English, so... And then her sons are from Morocco too. So they also see Arabic and English. Um... So, we grew up, I grew up like hearing a lot of different languages in the house, but I never, I never really studied them until I went to school, actually. So, and I learned, like in high school, I learned Spanish, but I also had an aide in the school, like a, a, a paraprofessional. <laughs> They called them in New York. Um, that, and he was Puerto Rican, though so he spoke Spanish, so that was, that really got me interested in Spanish and, like, especially Caribbean, that didn't, like, Latinx culture, um, so I, I don't speak fluently. I don't speak fluently any other language than the English, but um, I learned a lot of Spanish, and I love Spanish. Um, and then I learned French basically through through like the YouTube and stuff. Really, I did watch, 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 watching videos and like uh, reading, but then not. At Columbia, I, like, I consumed, I guess I consumed enough French to, like, be conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad speaks French, so, and when we have relatives over, I can sort of, like, say hello and stuff, so. But now, in, at Columbia, I'm doing a lot of translation work you know, from French to English, which it it was really helpful, and I think that even though I don't speak uh, Spanish or French fluently, like it definitely influenced my my poetry. Oh, for
1: sure. I mean, there's no escaping it.
0: The set for this set is called "On Blindness," The meander. The little ep- 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 epigraph, um, from the Odyssey, translated by Robert Fitzgerald. The choir soon came, leading that man of song, whom the muse cherished. By her gift, he knew the good of life and evil, for she who let him sweetness made him blind. The dog, the dog charts celestial spheres by nose hairs, illuminating a path for his master's foggy irises. The pause tap along with cane and foot. His god named him Atlas. And he had Calypso. And she kept a man bound by seashell and cave sets. I first heard this story in high school. My teacher said, if you read the Odyssey it should be kept as a trophy on your bookshelf. I'm still rolling my eyes. Between that brolic Armenian, bending a paper bag in his large hand. He loved that epic as if he sold it himself. And if he burned he'd burned the, that that child Odysseus. On some blurry island. I couldn't separate the Sarkeesian from the Homerian. Or the lost hero from Ithaca or Israel. Atlas's eyes steady. But his master's jitter. And without his dog, hearing aids, or shirt. He starts up a loud conversation in the bathroom. What? He initiates, his eyes flickering. He joins me at the mailbox, studying my orange vessels as they start to fill with books. We construct a library over tea and whiskey. We held our, cer- our ceremonies Over public stoves and lobby tables. Stranger and host exchanging stories all into the freezing night. I never stopped thinking about that trophy. At the end of all this island hopping, at the thick-lipped mouth of a long, sinuous stream, the Romani await me with their golden lemons And the trembling dirge of brothers, wives, and queens. They unravel my body by torchlight. Blindness comes like a midnight train conducted by the soft voice of an Argentinian librarian. In In that freshman cart, we chase golden trophies. A magnet tried to clasp onto itself, a number grade that is infinite and non-repeating. A force rubbed a pair of lost glasses on your nose. Eyeless, earless, limbless suitors called out our halls. But we never got to the part where we put arrows through their throats, beheaded their eyeless and the earless heads, and made their slave girls clean up the courses. I watched him pour the tea. I watched him pour the tea, libations to grit, to grit the limbs and eyes. We scrub our wounds with pages, and audiophiles. The only bomb of the sentence congealed in the rigid cast of letters or the deep wave of phonemes. Didn't we hang the women one by one one? Didn't they have it coming? Didn't the Quiffle God bind his wife to her secret lover? In the dead of unbreakable chains, a wedding bed to identify each other in the fast haze of time. A word, sprouting, maturing, then wilting. A-, a freshman in high school doesn't know his home because he hasn't missed it yet. The little Helen Keller shows long, simmering fits. She tried to fling herself out of her shadow world. She tried to snatch it up like a black seed. To define it by hand, a girl in a cave, she turned on her shadow. The sun burned out of her eyes. How could a high schooler resist the sweetness of shadow? The black lab pisses in the white snow. There are no trophies. No bookshelves. No classes. No classrooms. The hound negotiates an oncoming hall, pushing fur against gene. The universe d- deposits into his deltoid nose. His wet Hegelian nose. He flips from dog to master, from master to dog, he doesn't bark at trophies, he doesn't bark at all.
1: Wow. So, this this poem, um, if I remember it correctly, is one of the ones that we used for kind of... Um, like a structural bracketing or a kind of a section splitter, like because we don't have any internal sections in the book, but there are certain poems that sort of help the reader negotiate the different spaces so for me i um I wanted to talk to you about the role of the dog, right? We have a dog that gets brought in at the beginning, and the dog comes back in the end um is this a reference, a personal uh, experience that you had with a dog that's being brought in, or is it just fictional? Um, I, I, I was so taken by the way that you interwove all of this stuff with like Greek mythology and with like uh, classical literature. Um, it's, it's very much of the vein of like a high school class, what you would talk about, but the way you bring it all in is very elaborate. And, and um, so <clears throat> I am interested uh, what does this fascination with Greek culture or like, with, I guess with Greek literature, um, did that happen when you were in high school or did it happen more so later on? And you're like thinking back to it and being like, wow, that was really valuable. Or what do you think?
0: Yeah. So the, the film is about my friend Hunter, who I met in undergrad, who is a uh, deaf blind. And he uses a, a service dog named Atlas, who is a black lamb, a beautiful black lamb. He's retired now. The dog is retired. Not, not Hunter. Um. <laughs> Just,
1: so, okay. So that has thrown me for a whole loop. Because I thought that all this was Greek stuff. So I'm thinking Atlas, the one who holds up the sky. But that that crosses over, too, because this dog is sort of, like, very important to this person and sort of does hold up this guy in a a symbolic way. So that's... I did not make that connection.
0: He named him so well. Atlas is also a map.
1: Yeah, right? That's so perfect.
0: Yeah, so in the high school, we were assigned the Odyssey. And I remember, like, the reading of it was for me, very difficult. Like, I couldn't connect with it. That was
1: that was me in the Iliad, to be honest. I put a lot of time into the Iliad for ninth grade. I didn't do as much with the Odyssey, but the Iliad was like, I read the whole thing. It was very difficult.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, and we only had to read half of it, and it was, I wasn't really vibing with it, but there was, like, there were some parts of it that, that stuck with me. So... Mm-hmm. Later, um, in the, in the undergrad, I sort of was reading, we, like, I found an interest in, specifically in Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Yeah, because Plato comes up a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was reading, I read the Republic, and I was really Interested in in that, but so I wanted to. After I read those texts, I wanted to revisit <laughs> the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now that I, have, and when I when I revisited it, it was completely different experience. And I think that, like, I, what we what we learn from books and like media and stuff, it, we don't learn it. I think we don't learn it all at the same time. We we need it. We need it. I think we need it. certain books in certain periods of our lives. You know, that's when sometimes you read a book in a perfect moment, and that it resonates with you deeply because because you read it at that time. Oh yeah. Not at another time. Yeah. I, oh yeah, and I guess like going back to the dog and going back to Atlas and Hunter or Hunter and Atlas. <laughs> um <laughs> the, the interesting thing is like I think disabled people teach me some like other disabled people especially people with different disabilities than my own teach me a lot about the world um simply this by just hanging out with them and seeing how they negotiate things every every day seems like like crossing the street with your with your service like stuff like that Mm -hmm. these little moments they, they, they teach I, I think they teach me a lot um, and that goes back to what you were saying about the importance of disability
1: in community spaces and in communities in general Is that yeah. when there's more visibility to it there's actually more access for sympathy and for uh, support for people who might not even know that these things are going on at all who don't see it every day um, like that venue who might not have known that you needed That a stairwell or that a ramp would be needed beyond a stairwell for their for their stage or whatever, Um,
0: right? With that, I think there's two levels. The the fact that the obviously the government itself should be setting standards and like encouraging people. making
1: it easy. Yeah, there should be some businesses. sort of incentive
0: for people to do things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. money if you do that. And then the other side is individually. People should be getting out into the community and de- demanding that that it be accessible. Even mm-hmm. though it's not fair, I I shouldn't have to do that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes you have, to do, you have to do, you have to make it better for the people that comes after you or whatever. And you yeah. also
1: have to represent people who might not be able to right, pick up for definitely. themselves, right? Like there there's there's a certain subset of disabled people who don't even have the opportunity to do that. Like they can't right. they wouldn't be able to represent themselves in a protest format like our country asked them to, which in and of itself is ableist because you can't like you need to be able to have a voice even if you have a disability for your citizenship and then that doesn't even become prioritized because our government is so concerned with money and stuff they're more like oh well won't we lose money if we do that well why would we you know so i think it is really important i'm glad that you uh, are choosing to really engage with this sort of thing and sort of bring it to light um so speaking of light could we maybe um <clears throat> could we transition to uh, the next poem uh, a lake on the way home which i think as as far as poems go in this collection um a lake on the way home um definitely has a soft spot in my heart just because i think it as far as poems go stands out it's a little shorter and also it's a little bit more um a little bit less like your other poems it stands out it's it's um what's the word unique uh, in the collection
0: so that toothfold a little bit. Because they appear, um... They're actually the two poems before the last poem. Um, and they appear side to side on the... Side by side in the book. So I'm going to read one after the other. The first one is called... A Lake on the Way Home. The Still Lake... The sky before darkening, in that oval abyss, clouds, or swimming geese, so clear, so plain, nature looks in the mirror. The next poem is called, A Product Commentary on the Heart Sutra. A woman kneels down in a small art gallery to tie my sneaker. So let's talk about form in these two poems. Um,
1: I think generally in my experience with your work, it's been a little bit more form, not form avoidant, but I think you like to engage with more obscure forms or you like to kind of create your own by writing these longer pieces. Um, but what I like about these two poems is they are very traditional form-wise. Form so you've got uh, basically three couplets for this first poem. Um, and then for the second poem, it's just one tercet. Uh, and, and one of the things that I like about it is it happens so near the end of the book that it kind of primes us for the final poem. But it also gives us a nice little breather where we are able to really focus in on these specific images. And so I kind of want us to do that right now. Um, what do you think uh, a lake on the way home is doing in the book at this point, and what do you think um is the meaning of that final line?
0: I think considering that the lake on the way home it it precedes a very loud a loud poem, and I had the poem called Sama Salsa you can hear in the title that it's like a dancing poem this is what this is i think breaks up the 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 reader's expectations and it's more interested well not interested but it it's more reflective and observing um i think that the the images on the lake of the way home it they offer a place for the the speaker and the reader to meet and I think that, that that's important in poetry um and it,
1: it, Wait, so hold on. Elaborate on that. So you say it's a moment for the speaker and the reader to meet?
0: Yeah, so... Do you
1: feel like maybe that implies that some of the other poems, the speaker is sort of evasive or hard to locate in a way, and so this is one where you're actually grounded by the speaker's perspective, maybe?
0: Right. There's part part of the... Especially the longer poem where the speaker is... Mean, literally meandering (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're they're called meanders from from one thing to another Um, and we get a sort of like stream of conscious thing going on Mm -hmm. but in these two poems I think the the thing that we are observing is very clear to both of us Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that I I, I generally <laughs> I love of poems. The stuff that I'm writing now it tends towards this style. Um, so these are some of my favorite poems in the collection. Um, that's
1: that's very interesting to me. I went through a, a maximalism minimalism shift in poetry. Um, Cause I think I was trying to write a lot and like write long poems and stuff. And then I realized like that, that's, it, it's exhausting in one way. Like every time you start a new oh, poem, right. you don't necessarily finish it in one sitting, or you might have to revise. Um, whereas if you do a shorter poem, you can kind of get it done and be like, Ooh, look at this one and like show it to people. And then it's not <laughs> as much of a commitment for them to read it. Um, I find that interesting, but also for me, this poem just feels very modernist, like a sort I don't know if it's modernist, but like. The, the imagism in it is very clear and straightforward. And what I like about it is it provides a narrowing effect. There's the, the myopia of the lake image and the idea of nature looking at itself in the mirror is just the idea of you look at a lake with the reflection of nature, you can see the trees and everything else, the sky. Um, but also you could think about nature as representing the audience's perspective and that the audience is actually looking in the mirror and like looking through the author's eyes at themselves or whatever you could try to extrapolate from that. But the main thing I think is interesting is that it narrows down into what is even more a narrower poem uh, in Prolix Commentary on the Heart Sutra, where you have this singular moment of service. And it, it, it seems so meaningful because so much it is meaningful because so much of the book's purpose has been devoted to talking about caregiving and people helping and and like providing aid especially in a manner where sometimes they might not benefit that much from doing it aside from the obvious uh, gratification you get from helping someone who's in need but like the monetary benefit right fairly limited um but then when you look at this poem this is a person who you it seems like you don't know doing you a favor out of the kindness of her heart for no uh like money or anything just a nice favor to help out because you seem like you needed help and it's like a very it's just like a very for me, it's very uh, quotidian. It's even pedestrian in that like, it feels just like something that would happen on the street, but um, it feels so meaningful, especially because we get so little of the author and the poet's like body being narrated. I feel like more so we get narration about the body, but like to actually be inside of the narrator's perspective and having that be narrated in that way where the narrator just looks down and sees something is very focused compared to a lot of the other poems but it's more frenetic and so like this poem for me when I read it I was like oh dang and it really um it really stuck with me because I think even if you see something like that happen and you're not involved in it it feels very meaningful but I it's hard to imagine how meaningful it must have felt for you or even for the woman herself who was doing it because she was like oh here's a chance for me to do something nice you know um, and sometimes there's an egotism in why people do things nice and sometimes it's just a genuine desire to be nice um, So I think it's like a really nice um, I hate using the word again, but I think it's a really good way to lead into that final poem, which is such like a thundering strong statement um, too long to read on this podcast, unfortunately, but um, a really good way to like end the book with this like really kind of um, this, this, uh, what's the word for it? This flowing, uh, stream of thought, which then reiterates the style of the book, but also comes from this clarity that you built right before it, um, almost like, um, a calm before the storm, but it's not really a storm, you know, it's just like an intensity at the end.
0: Yeah, the, about the, the heart to, to, that little poem, yeah, what you said is accurate and I think there's it's not just kindness but like I think there's something natural about these kind ads that happen that uh, they just happen and oh, I think well this is this poem is a haiku. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the syllable, but it's not. It's not really. It, it it's just a haiku in syllables. It's not really thematically a haiku. But anyway, the, I guess the point is, is that I'm really interested in this idea about what can we do and acting to help somebody else that the person being helped and the person helping they sort of become ambiguous or they like blend into each other i I think that's what i i try to do here where there's nothing i didn't really want to say anything about it i just wanted to Present the reader with the act itself. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the title does a lot of that work too, to provide a little bit more context beyond just the act.
0: And in the Heart Sutra, you have um, the famous line form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And like I said before, the dual of the act gets dissolved in the action itself Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i mean i think some of what's so cool about this book is you can know like i don't know anything about buddhism i know a little bit i know about nirvana more I, i know that it's more than just the name of a band but like for me um my my understanding of buddhism beyond the more surface level things is pretty pretty brief and i like that i can kind of read your book and know less about it and still get something out of that in where it appears in the poems. Um, Whereas there are a lot of poets who are less inviting and use more reader inhibiting words and like phrases and stuff that I feel like is purposeful obfuscation. Like they're trying to make it hard to understand their poetry so that it seems more intelligent. And what I like about your poetry is it's clearly stated it's not necessarily easy to follow. Like it's challenging work. Like you can't read this willy nilly. You got to come into it with an attitude where you're going to finish the poem, but also that rewards the reader because it's not just high mindedness. It's high mindedness mixed with a kind of heart um, that comes through quite a bit. And I feel like that is something that's often very much missing in a lot of American poetry is there's a kind of, there's an intellect, there's a intellectualization but I would say there's an overintellectualization and an under-empathy, like a kind of empathy avoidance, and people are so worried about being um, sentimental. And it's unfortunate that that word comes up so much in creative writing workshops. Like, oh, this feels vaguely sentimental. But like, when you look at the opposite end of that, poetry that's completely unsentimental is sometimes really bad. So like, there has to be there has to be a kind of a middle ground there. Um and I think unfortunately a lot of programs do do kind of push too far into the other way.
0: Yeah, I think that provided the the best thing or oh, the thing that helped me write this book is just being playful. Um I think that play is the best way to write. Don't take yourself seriously, don't think don't think about being overly sentimental or what just just right and i think that the 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 core of this book is me just saying okay i'm going to sit down and write write a river poem i don't know what that means i don't know what that is but i'm I'm about to find out right now Mm through yeah through writing Okay, this next poem is called "Hello." I sat on the floor of my walk-in shower My aid turned on the bath but couldn't get the water to come out of the shower head I see I see She kept trying to turn the handle No, no And oh, and oh, I pointed to the golden ring at the mouth of the bath faucet. The huddle. Her hand kept going back up to the handle. Warm water coursing down brown tile. I laughed. The Latin phonemes, sweet on my tongue. After four years, the world had left me like a pueblo, swallowed by seaweed and sand. I dug up dead grammar, my shovel cutting through decaying limbs. I held up my hand, which shook in incantations. Dame, el mano. She gave me hers and I guided it by spasm to the golden head of the faucet. She pulled it down. The water stopped. Her eyes widened, then calmed. The water poured from above. Then she thanked me. I don't know why. Nice. One of the things that
1: fascinates me about this book. Um, is the things, I mean, obviously with any poetry book, it's the things the poet chooses to focus on. Um, I'm noticing uh, the, the identity stuff, it's not just internal, it's external too. You you try to give visibility to the identity of the people who are, are acting as helpers to you, as aides, as uh, medical professionals, whatever. I know you can't really give visibility to that first poem where you have the voice of the doctors or of the clinicians or whoever. Um, but at the same time, you still give them a voice in what they're saying. And here you're actually giving us uh, an idea of who this aid is and also this interesting experience. Um, is there uh, is there some reason? I mean, I'm guessing there's a reason why you, you you're hoping to give a little bit more of that visibility to the people who who help you out. I mean, I feel like, you know, we don't talk enough about the people who do that kind of work. I think it's something that often goes unseen. I mean, how do you feel about that?
0: Yeah, of of course. Um, The people who helped me create my poetry, there's no, (laughs) there's no, without them, there's no poetry. Uh, They, they literally keep me alive. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not just that, um, this I this aide, it was her name is Maria and she was from the Dominican Republic and I had her for like about six months but um, so the first day I met her she was having a difficult time understanding understanding what I said in English so I tried. 14, I like, I was like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed of my Spanish that I was like hesitant, but I said like something in Spanish, maybe like as, as a gesture to like, maybe it'll be easier for, for her to understand me this way. And that was like the last time we spoke English ever, like, she was, <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, okay, and then, I only right, she only spoke to me in Spanish for like six months. Like that's
1: great, though. That shows the <laughs> Spanish influence
0: too. You know, like yeah. And I, um, I learned, but the important thing is, is like I get you like I learned these not language from the people who are feeding me and helping me in the bed, and the language is. Infused in that, and th- that's why I, I say that uh, I mean my age are the subject or, or not the subject my age, my age influenced my poetry, not just my age, but the, my family helps me all the time. Um, so I and there's this feeling of intimacy. And the a special relationship between somebody, um, a caregiver and the recipient of the care. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. I, I remember I had to take care of my grandfather um, when he was older and he was living in our home. And I remember those moments where he was totally reliant on me. I felt very protective. Like, I was like, oh, this man needs my help. I'm going to help him. So, yeah. like, I feel like that kind of bond of somebody who is totally dependent, and somebody who has the ability to help is so like authentic and real. And that's one of the things that I really like that you bring that into the book, Uh, you show that because it's something that a lot of people I think, especially in America, don't think about because people in America want to have their they want to have their needs and wants tended to as long as they can pay for it, like, Oh, you better do this, you better I want this, I want that. And so they don't even understand that, like, it's a struggle for you to attain that care, even. Like with our medical system, it's hard for you to get a caregiver consistently. You got to pay for that stuff. You got to set that up.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, our medical, well, (laughs) our society doesn't. Yeah, doesn't value that sort of work, um, and it's sad. I think that that work, providing people with care who need it, it should be. well-paid, well-funded. It's really important. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, that should be on the same tier as we're talking about, like, teaching, right? Like, teachers need to be paid more. So do, like, caregivers. Like, people who are doing that kind of work, like, the ground-level stuff that needs to happen in any free society, like, that has to happen, like, that stuff needs to be better funded.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's... A big, a big theme, I guess, that I try to address in my work is that the disability or accommodating people isn't done for the person that you're accommodating; it's done for yourself, uh, mm-hmm. and I don't think that it's a <laughs> It's hard to explain that, but I think it's true, and I've had to show that through poetry. hmm Yeah, I, I wanted to thank you for,
1: for talking to us today, Latif. We don't have any more time for reading. Um, I uh, I really appreciate you you uh, being willing to do this, being willing to read the poems.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, thank you, thank you for the... To the whole Stillhouse team, uh, and I hope people enjoy the book.
1: I know they will, Latif. All right, man. Have yourself a good day. You
0: too. The Moonshine Murmurs podcast is produced by Stillhouse Press staff in coordination with Watershed Lit. For more episodes and updates, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Twitter, and Instagram. Stillhouse Press is a student-led craft publisher working with George Mason University and Watershed Lit. You can find out more about Stillhouse Press and upcoming releases and
1: events at stillhousepress.org. Thank you for listening.